1: Romans in chapter 8, starting in verse 19, please hear the word of God. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Let's stop there. R.J. Rush Dooney in his book Flight from Humanity tells the story of a monk in ancient times who was in his cell the little room the monk stayed in that was their cell he was in his cell and he squashed a gnat that had bitten him on the foot overcome by a sense of conviction he Condemned himself for his rash act of revenge against that one of God's creatures. And as punishment, he sentenced himself to live for six months in a nearby marsh where the insects were famous for making a living out of biting through the hides of animals that were actually walking around in leather. And after six months of living out there in this marsh, the monk returned to his monastery. And Rushduni says they recognized him only by his name. And for a moment, they believed that maybe he was an unfortunate traveler looking for aid. A man who was stricken with elephantiasis, you know, that disease. And so apparently it was pretty gross. But his contemporaries there lifted that monk up as being a paragon of virtue. They told that story like it was a good thing. That here is a monk who was so hard on his flesh for the sake of being holy. And we've talked about this before. We saw it in the book of Colossians. This idea that sanctification cannot be achieved by treating your fleshly body harshly. And why is that? Because your body is not the source of sin in your life. Jeremiah chapter 17 says that the heart is desperately wicked. Deceitful above all things. The seat of sin in man is the inward man. Right? And we've talked about that before. I wanted to relate to you that when I was... First converted, uh, I had teachers and well-meaning Christians sell the idea of fasting to me based on this idea that when we fast, what happens is we are weakening our physical bodies so that it will be easier for our spirit to be in charge and take control and, and we can start Focusing on the right things. You see, that's that same idea. The idea that the key to spiritual success and sanctification and doing good things for God is that we have to punish our flesh. By the way, I don't know if you've heard, you probably have one of the big fads in recent days in terms of dieting is this idea of intermittent fasting have you heard about this where you don't fast for a long time but like a minimum of maybe 18 hours and you do this once or twice a week you fast for 18 hours or so at least and this is the all the science kind of points in the direction of this being good and healthy for your body because it gives your body a chance to cleanse and to really get rid of toxins and gives your digestive system a bit of a rest and you come back stronger and healthier. Well, now we've got a real dilemma because now the science is saying that a short fast here and there is actually good for your body. So if you were hoping to make a spiritual headway by punishing your body through intermittent fasting, Well, my goodness, now you're going to have to find something else. You may have to go back to actually scourging yourself or something like that. Well, of course, that's ridiculous. And I don't want to spend too much time on that. But we talked before about this idea of Neoplatonism. Now, I want to give you a mnemonic so that you can get some of these things. I got this, the first college philosophy course that I took. And it's very simple, and it's very, <laughs> like, if you don't know anything about ancient philosophy, this will help you. Uh, on one side of the paper, you write down the, the word SPA, S-P-A, vertically. So you have an S, and under it a P, and under it an A. And then in the column next to those letters, next to the S, you put a question mark. Next to the P, you have a, an arrow pointing up. And next to the A, you have an arrow pointing down. Okay, so what that will what that will remind you of is the chronological order and kind of the big idea behind the Greek philosophers that we kind of consider to be the most important: Socrates, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Or spa, S P A. Now, what was Socrates' thing? Well, the The question mark is by the S, and that's meant to remind you that Socrates was famous for what we call the Socratic method, and he was big on the idea that in order to arrive at the truth, we just have to ask the right questions. Okay, Beneath him, after him in history, we had Plato, and Plato was famous for systemizing this idea that the world is really divided between two worlds. There are really two worlds. There's one that we can't see. It's the upper realm where in this realm we have pure things like idea and mind and spirit. We have the ideal form of things. Everything we see on the earth is because there's some ideal of that thing in the upper realm that we can't see. So he was very big on this division. And so in Platonic thought then the real important world is that upper world that we can't really see or get into. And the lower world, the one we happen to actually be living in, is transient, is temporary, and it's purely material. And as a consequence, it's less good or even evil. And so that's what the Gnostics kind of believe, that all spirit is good and all flesh is evil. And so Gnostic religion, especially, and Gnostic flavors of Christianity have tended to be very harsh on the body for the sake of growing in the spirit, supposedly. After, after Plato, you have the A, which stands for Aristotle, and he's got the arrow pointing down next to his initial. And so Aristotle basically bought into Plato's division of the two worlds, but he was a little bit more practical maybe as we would see it a little bit more pragmatic and his idea was since we are in this lower world and we're separated from this upper world of ideas and mind and spirit since we live here in the world of what he called particulars not the ideals but the particulars since we live here This is really all we can deal with. And so he was in favor of focusing more on what we can see than what we can't see. And that whether it's good or not, this is what we have and this is what we must deal with. Uh, Which is very much the pragmatic uh, culture that we live with. Very materialistic and suspicious of all things spiritual. Okay? Okay. Now, what I want to point out to you, we talked before, last time we mentioned this, our focus was on on that fact that as individual Christians, we cannot buy into this division. The passage that we just read in Romans chapter 8 focuses on the fact that our world, the whole creation, was placed under a curse, including our physical bodies. Now, when did this happen? Well, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve fell and were kicked out of the garden, part of the curse was a curse on the land itself and as a consequence of their sin now they're no longer going to be able to just kind of walk around and pluck the food that they want and if they don't want this food over here just take a couple more steps and here's a tree with a different kind of food and it's right there for the taking now under the curse it's by the sweat of your brow that you will eat your bread because now the ground would rather grow thorns and thistles that's the curse economists kind of refer to that as a principle of scarcity the fact that we really are, we really do struggle with things like the second law of thermodynamics and stuff really does break down before we want it to and that's just the world we live in we live in this curse of scarcity where if there's going to be enough for everybody there has to be somebody doing a whole lot of work But I see also in that passage, it's not just the, it isn't just the creation that's under a curse, but it's our bodies as well. And what that passage does is it looks forward to the day of redemption. The creation itself will be released from that curse as the sons of God are revealed. Now, whether you believe that happens progressively over time as the gospel is preached and the kingdom of God is extended Or you believe it's a mostly cataclysmic event that Jesus will bring about at his second coming. For our purposes, that doesn't really matter so much as long as we understand that the promise is that these things will be redeemed. The creation itself and your physical bodies. And that kind of puts the lie to the whole notion that God is not so concerned about this lower material realm. He's got a redemptive plan for it. He's got redemptive promises for your physical flesh even. Now I'd like to expand that. We, Like I say, we've spent some time talking about individual ramifications of that. But let's expand it a little bit. In Rush Duny's book, The Flight from Humanity, that I mentioned, he, he at some point then transitions from talking about the effect of Neoplatonism on ideas of personal spirituality. And he points out that the proto-communists, men like Marx and Engels and uh, Hegel, that they kind of bought into this idea, too, of a a bifurcated creation where you have the upper level and the lower level, and the upper level is important. And what Rushduni points out is that these men bought into that idea, and their goal was not just to see themselves transcend into this upper region where things are good and great, but to see all of society move that way. And they believed society would move that way as long as the right leaders were in place. These had to be philosopher kings. These had to be men who were able to transcend their own material self and move into that upper realm and they had to be smart enough not only to do it for themselves but for everybody they were leading turns out that meant whether these other folks wanted to go or not they were all gonna have to go the way that the leader told them to go because these smart guys they know how to get into this upper kingdom they know how to transcend what they called the kingdom of necessity where you have to work real hard and, and there, doesn't, there seems at times to not be enough to go around. They were looking to transcend that and create this second story kind of utopia on earth where now you don't have to work so hard. Food and all things that you need are abundantly provided. They're mostly free. And wow, what a, what a great place that'll be whether you want to actually go there or not. What I want to point out is that that kind of corporate movement or that corporate design of moving from the lower level to the upper level has affected the church, and we see it around us in several ways even today. Are you interested in Christian education? Would you like to learn how to be a Christian teacher or how to run your very own Christian school with success? The GCS Apprenticeship Program can help. Learn more on our website at gcsapprenticeship.com.
0: The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology.
1: Kind of the same way that Marx and Engels, and Hegel, kind of the same way that they hope to see all of society translated from the lower, less important kingdom to the upper, more permanent one. Frankly, within evangelical Christianity in the West, even today, we have several theologies that have the same effect, only they tend to be more focused on just the church. What I'm saying is that there are several theologies that are taught by otherwise Bible-believing men that have the effect of dividing the world up into that which is spiritual and eternal and therefore good, and that which is spiritual or physical and temporary and fading away and therefore evil, and, and really probably at its base at war with God anyway. And several of these theologies abound. They go by, I'm not saying they're the same, but they have different titles. We have what's called two kingdoms theology or radical two kingdoms theology. There's another one called new covenant theology and of course dispensationalism. These all have the effect of buying into Plato's division of the world into the spiritual and therefore good, and the physical and therefore not so good. Now, one of the ways they do that is by claiming that the Old Testament is different from the New Testament in that the Old Testament is very concerned with physical things. So you have a physically defined people of God, the Jews who are on their way and they're occupying a physical promised land on the physical earth. And Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28 are talking about blessings and cursings. And these are all, you read through all these uh, blessings and curses, they're all very physical in terms of sickness and healing, uh, wealth and poverty, uh, defeat in battle versus victory in battle. Uh, many offspring versus barrenness, good crops versus no crops, aliens coming in and kicking you off your land versus you remaining on your land in peace. So all these blessings and curses are very physical. Now these, these false theologies would then say that now along comes the New Testament and because of the work of Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit and the... Different organization, which is now the church, which is a spiritual organization. You see, the church really kind of belongs in this upper level. It doesn't belong exclusively to this lower level or even primarily. And so what happens is now in Christ, we have many spiritual blessings. We have forgiveness of sins, we have eternal life, we have peace and joy, we have unity with each other. We have free and open access to God. We have many things, many blessings that the Bible really does enumerate for us. These are good and lovely. They're wonderful. We thank God for them. But what these false theologies will do is they'll, they'll draw this same false dichotomy between the two worlds. And now what they do is they will say, you can't go back and really take those blessings and curses seriously. It's probably not right for you to try to draw a line between those things that are written in the blessings and curses and the things that you actually see happening in the world. For instance, if a, if a land is hit by drought and their crops fail, it's not good to go back and see, well, how have they been dealing with the commandments of God? That's wrong because we're in the new covenant. And now the, the blessings of the new covenant are not about your crops anymore. It's not about your physical health. It's about spiritual blessings. All those old blessings were really just kind of metaphors for the great things that God would eventually do. See, those physical blessings, they're all down on the lower level. But now in Christ, we're raised up to this upper level. And what you can have with these uh, false these false theologies that really do promote this view, you can really begin to see this dichotomy come in. Radical Two Kingdoms, uh, for instance, proposes that the, the kingdom of God's grace, the real, the more important, the better, the higher kingdom, is the church where Jesus has come in his grace and he's given us his commandments, he's saved us, and according to this theory, Christians come through the doors of the church on Sunday morning. They go through a liturgy in corporate worship, and as a function of that liturgy, they are actually raised up into heavenly places, worshiping with the angels at the throne of God. They're no longer, there's a sense in which is right to say they're no longer here. They're no longer in the lower level, they're in the upper level. They're in the, they're in the good place, spirit and mind and idea and eternity and blessing. That's where they are and that's where they're worshiping. The hour is up and now it's time to go eat lunch and the church comes back down to earth and leaves the church building and goes out into what's called the common kingdom. So you have the redemptive kingdom, which is the church, and outside that you have the common kingdom. Now what they would say then is that the church is ruled by the word of God, but in the common kingdom, it's not ruled by the word of God. It's ruled by this theory of natural law, where we're going to have sinners whose minds have not been yet enlightened, we're going to have them be in charge of kind of feeling around in the dark and see what kind of good ruling concepts they can come up with they're going to stumble around and maybe find some useful principle but to a lot of these folks who preach those sorts of things it's actually better for the people out in the world to stumble around like that and maybe find a good principle here and there it's better for that to happen than for christians to go out and actually say look it says it says this in my bible in 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 genesis It says this in Deuteronomy. It says this in Exodus. Thus saith the Lord. No, 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 you can't preach that. That's the common kingdom. They are ruled by a different law. They are ruled by natural law. It's better for them to come up with their own imperfect, unjust, fundamentally rebellious rules than it is to have Christians leave the kingdom of of God, the redeemed kingdom, And go out there and try to bring them under the law of God. I know it sounds ridiculous, but that's true. It's true. They really do feel that way. And some of these false theologies, another way they draw a false dichotomy, a Neoplatonist false dichotomy, is they'll have uh, law and grace or law and gospel at odds with each other. So that you will have people say things like you shouldn't be preaching commandments to the people who are inside the church because they're New Covenant people. You can't be going and telling them they need to obey. They really believe that if I stand up here as a a pastor and tell you here is what the Word of God says, this is what God commands you to do, that if I do that, then I'm placing you in bondage somehow, that I'm preaching moralism. I'm no longer preaching the religion of the Bible, I'm being moralistic by telling you, look, the Bible actually says you should do this. And so you should do this. Oh no, no, you can't. No. You have to every message has to be about the gospel. You have to you have to preach what God has done in Christ Jesus, death, burial, and resurrection, atonement for sins. You have to preach that every Sunday because that's the only way anybody's going to grow. And if you, if you don't preach that one Sunday and you preach the Ten Commandments instead, now you're going to put them all in bondage. See, the law works against the gospel. They have, separate, they have separate goals because one belongs to the lower realm and one belongs to the higher realm. And you can't mix these two. What do we say to that? We say that's ridiculous. Was that David's view of the law in Psalm 19? Psalm 119? Turn with me real fast. Psalm 19. Now, watch carefully as I read Psalm 19, verses 7 through 10. How did David feel about the Word of God that he was dealing with? The law of the Lord is perfect. Enslaving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Causing the simple to walk in foolishness. The statutes of the Lord are right. Bringing sadness to the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. Causing our eyes to be blinded. The fear of the Lord is clean. Keeping you in chains forever the judgments of the lord are true and righteous altogether yet more to be desired is the pure word of god's grace now if you were paying attention you know i was just uh messing with you there that's not david's view at all is it what does it say the law of the lord is perfect converting the soul These, these uh, men who hold to this false dichotomy where the Old Testament exists on a lower level than the New Testament. You know, the image is they have the poor believer standing there with one arm chained to a horse heading west and the other arm chained to a horse heading east. And these horses are named law and gospel and when the, uh, when the executioner comes, he's going to crack the whip and both horses are going to go. They, have, they believe that the law and the gospel are running in different directions. They have different goals. They're moving toward different ends. But the goal, the goal of both law and gospel according to the scripture is the implementation of the kingdom of God in the earth. According to the scripture, the picture is not the poor believer being pulled apart by horses going in opposite directions. But it's the believer standing in the Lord's war chariot. And that chariot is being pulled by two mighty horses. And they're side by side and they're parallel and they're both headed toward victory. This is the kingdom of God. Law and gospel working in parallel. They're not the same. They don't have the same function but they're moving in the same direction and they're aiming at the same thing, which is the knowledge of God covering the world as the waters cover the sea. This is what we're aiming for.
0: Thank you for listening to Setting the Record Straight. Join us on Facebook at the Reconstructionist Radio Discussion Group. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to listen to all of our podcasts and to download our free audiobooks.